a look at 80s music from Orange County, California. Music that came from here and music that came to here. Join me, your host, Doug Crandall, every Thursday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Behind the Orange Curtain. Behind the Orange Curtain explores music that came from Orange County, California to influence the rest of the world and music that made it to Orange County, California from around the world to influence those of us who lived here in the 1980s. This week we'll continue to look at the US Festival, focused this week on the second event in 1983 and specifically day one and day three. The goal for the month of November is to look at threads and themes of thankfulness and giving. If there's one individual, as I mentioned before, that gave the most in the 80s when it came to music, it was Steve Wozniak of Apple Computer. And we're thankful for the historic event that he created in the world of music and live festivals. The reprise of this festival ran for three days. This time at the helm was Colorado-based promoter Barry Fay, who with Wozniak added a fourth country day a week later. In late May, its first day, weather was slightly cooler at 95 degrees, but the air quality conditions in the region were worst, the worst in four years. The total attendance was reported at 670,000 festival goers. The festival still lost $12 million, and there were two reported deaths. The lineup looked like this. Saturday, May 28th was New Wave Day featuring Divinals, In Excess, Walla Voodoo, Oingo Boingo, The English Beat, A Flock of Seagulls, Stray Cats, Men at Work, The Clash. Sunday was the heavy metal day that unfortunately we don't have enough time to cover in this episode, but deserves its own episode, so stay tuned. The bands on this day were Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, Triumph, Scorpions, and Van Halen. Monday, May 30th, was Rock Day, featuring Los Lobos, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul, Quarter Flash, Berlin, Missing Persons, U2, The Pretenders, Joe Walsh, Stevie Nicks, David Bowie. And on the Country Day, for those that are interested, the Thrasher Brothers, Ricky Skaggs, Hank Williams Jr., Emmy Lou Harris and the Hot Band, Alabama, Waylon Jennings, Riders in the Sky, and ended with Willie Nelson. Let's get kicked off now with The Divinals. The Divinals were an Australian band that was formed in Sydney in 1980. The band primarily consisted of vocalist Chrissy Amphlett and guitarist Mark McEntee. Amphlett garnered widespread attention for performing on stage 
in a school uniform and fishnet stockings, and often used in an illuminated neon tube as a prop for displaying aggression towards both band members and the audience. Originally a five-piece band, they underwent numerous lineup changes with Amplint and McEntee remaining as core members before its dissolution in 1996. Christine Joy Amplett, born October 25, 1959, she grew up in Geelong in Victoria, Australia. She left home as a teenager and traveled to England, France, and Spain, where she was detained for three months in Spain for singing on the streets. Amplett grew up in Geelong and attended Belmont High School. She was a cousin of Australian singer Little Patty, or Patricia Amplett. Amplett worked as a child model from the age of three until 12, and later said, I didn't come from a very wealthy family, so that actually clothed me and allowed me to have things. According to her autobiography, her father was a World War II veteran and the son of a German immigrant and Melbourne chef, while her mother was from a well-off Hawthorne family. Amphlett and her husband, Mark McEntee, were romantically involved from 1982 to 1993. They met in 1980 and began a relationship two years later when McEntee split up with his wife. Their relationship was highly volatile, being marred by drug and alcohol use and physical fights. However, the band's manager, Vince Lovegrove, later stated that the nature of their weird relationship was the magic of divinals. On July 27, 1999, Amphlett married American drummer Charlie Drayton, who played drums on the divinals' self-titled album and was the drummer of the reformed group. In an interview on Nine Network Program of Current Affair on December 7th of 2007, Amphlett revealed that she had multiple sclerosis. On October 20th, she announced that she had breast cancer and was being treated in New York where she lived with her husband. On January 24th, she claimed to be cancer-free. Amphlett died age 53 on April 21st, 2013 at their home in Manhattan after a long battle with breast cancer. Due to the MS that Amphlett concurrently had, she reported that she was unable to receive radiation treatment or chemotherapy as a cancer treatment. Following the announcement of Amphlett's death, numerous tributes were received from artists and performers and musicians. Although their big hits wouldn't come until the end of the 80s and the early 90s, their music was always strong. Here are Divinals performing Only Lonely, written for the 1981 Australian film Monkey Grip, the song is about a heroin-addicted prostitute junkie living on the streets of King's Cross in Sydney, where Christina Amphlett was an actress in the movie. And the song, Boys in Town. It's all right. 
Australian band. Shabu Shaba is Australian rock group Inexcess's third studio album, and it was released on 16th of October 1982. It peaked at number five on the Aria Albums chart and remained on the chart for 94 weeks. It was the band's first album to be released worldwide and appeared on the United States Billboard 200 
and on the Hot Pop Albums chart. The album spawned four singles, The One Thing in July of 1982, Don't Change, later in October, Look at You, March of 83, and Black and White in June. It was produced by Mark Opitz, with most tracks written by band members Andrew Ferris and Michael Hutchins. The name Shabu Shaba is an onomatopoeia of a rhythm in the song Spy of Love. At the 1982 Countdown Australian Music Awards, the album was nominated for Best Australian Album. Reviewed at the time of its release, Rolling Stone Australia wrote, After the funk and ska of their last two albums, this one is sort of expensive tribal, a touch of the furry animal, a hint of pagan, and some guilt edging. Perhaps it's too glib to dismiss NXS as the next Duran Duran, but undeniably, Shabu Shaba has all the hallmarks of a current British pop album. Rip It Up wrote from the opening, The One Thing, it sways and swaggers through two sides of sheer musical bliss, very ably led by vocalist Michael Hutchins, who handles all the songs with an almost arrogant ease. The One Thing was written by guitarist Andy Ferris and lead singer Michael Hutchins. This song is about having a girl who is beautiful and confident, with lots of men after her. It was the first song by this Australian group to make an impact in the United States, setting the groundwork for their international success in the mid-1980s. The song hit the charts as the band embarked on their first tour of America, first as the opener for Adam and the Ants, and then as a support act for the Go-Go's. There was a lot of intermingling on this tour. The band's manager had to stay in contact to determine the whereabouts of its members. Six boys, five girls, you can work it out their manager said. The one thing had picked up steam and so did the band. At the US Festival in California, NXS earned an encore. Here for you now are three songs that were performed, To Look At You, The One Thing, and Don't Change. It's called To Look At You.
guys from Australia? New Zealand? Ah, that's the other flag, right? <laughs> and the rest of you, I think you're all from, you know, the United States of America, is that right? Oh, yes! Let me hear all you! Ah! Sounds very good to me. Yeah. 
Wall of Voodoo had its roots in Acme Soundtracks, a film score business started by Stan Ridgway, later the vocalist and harmonica player for Wall of Voodoo. Acme Soundtracks office was across the street from the Hollywood punk club, The Mask, and Ridgway was soon drawn into the emerging punk new wave scene. Mark Moreland, guitarist for The Skulls, began jamming with Ridgway at Acme Soundtrack's office, and the soundtrack company morphed into a new wave band. In 1977, the audition of The Skulls members Bruce Moreland, Mark Moreland's brother, as bassist, and Chaz T. Gray as keyboardist, along with Joe Nanini, who had been the drummer for The Bags, The Eyes, Black Randy, and The Metro Squad. The first lineup of Walla Voodoo was born. The band was named Walla Voodoo before their first gig in reference to a comment made by Joe Berardi, a friend of Ridgeway's and member of the Fibonacci's. Berardi was listening to some of the Acme soundtracks music Ridgeway and Moreland had created in their studio when Ridgeway jokingly compared the multiple drum machine and Farfisa organ laden recordings to Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. Berardi commented, it sounds more like a wall of voodoo, and the name stuck. In an interview with Bruce Moreland, he was asked, About a year after the call of West, the wall of voodoo went on hiatus with departures of Stan Ridgeway and Joe Nanini. The group's last show with Stan was at the 83 Us Festival, also the last show that The Clash would play with Mick Jones. It seemed like a lot of post-punk bands were running out of steam by 1983. A lot of money was coming into the picture for some groups, which might have been a divisive factor. What happened at the US Festival? Bruce responds, I don't think it had to do anything with the US Festival itself. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that if a band was going to break up anywhere within seven or eight months of that show, they'd stick around to play the US Festival because the money was so good and because they were already contracted to do it. I think that's why it might have seemed like so many bands broke up after the festival, but they were already on that course. With Walla Voodoo, it had a lot to do with Stan's ego getting a little too big. He had done a track with Stuart Copeland for a movie, which probably gave him the idea of going solo. Stan just thought he could get songwriting credit all to himself. People assume that the lead singer is the songwriter and the leader of the band, but in Stan's case, he wasn't. And I think that became obvious in his solo records, that Stan wasn't the creative force behind Walla Voodoo. In a 2010 Son Facts interview with Walla Voodoo, the lead singer Stan Ridgway explained, We used to go to rehearsals in my old 67 Mustang, and I used to get on the AM radio there on the console and try to find a Mexican radio station that was wafting in from the border over in Tijuana. This was like 1980, 81 or something. So when I would find one, I would say, Oh, hey, look, guys, I'm on a Mexican radio. And so, okay, I'm on one. I'm on a Mexican radio. And that was the germ of what started to develop. And then it just kind of developed. And a lot of planets were aligning at that point culturally. MTV was getting going. And what they called new music was making some headway into people's ears. Radio still was not playing it. But when MTV became as popular as it did, radio had to play it. And it was right about that time where the door to America culture, or actually straight radio culture, kind of opened up just a little bit and a few people got their feet in. Here is Walla Voodoo's cover of the late great Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire, and of course their hit, Mexican Radio. All right, you asked for it, we got it. 
We got it. Wall of Voodoo.
up a repeat band from 1982 but this time we have actual live footage as the quality was much better. Oingo Boingo and the English Beat were the only two bands to play both the 82 and the 83 US festivals. Oingo Boingo had been touring their album Nothing to Fear in 82 but in 1983 they would release their third studio album Good for Your Soul. It was produced by Robert Margoleff and it was the band's last album to be released on A&M Records. The record continues unorthodox arrangements that the band had been known for while moving in a softer direction than their previous work. Here is some audio from their live performance at the US Festival. US 83, Fish here from K-Rock. Thanks for coming down. All right, we're here to see the Clowns of Death from LA. Otherwise known as the most energetic band at US 83, Oingo Boingo! Thank you! I go, I go! Tonight 
Do you want to suffer by yourself in a pool of blissful misery? Do you feel like the same if others close with a rosary in your hand? Do you want to be crazy like Van Gogh, like a stranger in a strange, strange land? Would you rather push the button and be feared by all humanity? Or perhaps you'd like to be above? Do you want to be stupid just like me? Get it. 
Allen for making this all possible. We're running a little late, so we gotta end now with a goodbye, goodbye. About the ways of loving, but I tell you, baby, I think something's wrong. Look to the sky, but it might be low. So if you drive me crazy, we got to get away. Bye, 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 bye. Which is that I die? I'm making you a third Flock of Seagulls' first self-titled album received good reviews upon its release and significant radio airplay. In his retrospective review for All Music, 
Tom Demolion gave the album 4.5 stars, calling it great fun and a wonderful collection of new wave ear candy. Prominent critic Robert Christgau also was happy with it, giving it an A-, saying that it was so transparently, guilelessly expedient that it actually provides the hooked, choked, fun most current pop bands only advertised. Other reviews pointed out the band's pioneering sounds, compelling hooks, and undeniably addictive gimmicks. The band, and particularly this album, were influential during the 80s for their image and also their production techniques, which at one point garnered the respect of record producer Phil Spector, who in the 1980s called the album phenomenal. Right before the 83 Us Festival, the Flock of Seagulls had just released their second studio album, Listen. The album was released on April 29th of that same year. It once again teamed the group with record producer Mike Howlett, who produced their debut album, except on the single release, It's Not Me, or simply called Talking, which was produced by Bill Nelson. The record included the UK top 10 hit, Wishing, or If I Had a Photograph of You. Other singles released from the album include Nightmares and Transfer Affection. The face on the cover of the album is that of the band's drummer and brother of Mike Score, Ali Score. Here for you are two songs from their live performance, Telecommunication and Iran.
As we mentioned, there were two bands that played both festivals. The other is the English Beat. In an interview with Dave Wakeling, he says, when we were putting the footage and package together of the memories, and I looked at the old posters and saw who else was on the bill with us, I was amazed. To be honest, at the time, it was so huge that it was hard to take on board. You just acted blasé about it, as if you always rode to helicopters on every gig, had three-quarter of a million people and three PA systems flaking up into the distance. It was the first time we'd ever been on a helicopter, and I didn't even know that they went sideways with the wind when they're taking off. I thought they just went straight in the air. I remember feeling a bit of Dutch courage, thinking, I can do this. You looked at the crowd, and you couldn't see the end of it. We played in the afternoon. People looked like the size of ants coming up over the hilltop. In retrospect, I didn't realize until we started compiling it that I was actually on the side of the stage for The Clash's last gig. With its original lineup, my favorite band of all time, and I was right there. I was a little nervous at first. When we got on stage, I started singing the first song on camera with the telescopic arm immediately shot right in front of my face. I was singing to a quarter of a million people. But guess what? I couldn't see one of them. The only way I managed to get through it was to straighten my legs, keep them really firm and solid until the first song was over, and then I was okay. That was the largest gig that we would ever play. In 1982, we'd been touring with The Clash, so I think we were a little punkier and more of a reggae mood. When we'd been touring with The Police in 83, that probably chilled us out a little bit. The Beat weren't going to many gigs after that, so there was a sense of finality to the tour in 83. The 82 one is more energetic, but I would say that 83 is tighter and more choreographed. In an interview with Rankin Roger, the question was asked, you split up in 1983. Looking back, was that the right time? Rankin replies, I have to say no. I've thought about it many times and I found myself feeling really bad about it. And then other times, I've looked back and thought, oh well, this is how it goes. Just deal with it. And I have. I have dealt with it. It's not like a burden or anything. It was simply a mistake. Now I look back and I realize the beat were overworked. We were much in demand and we didn't have enough time to take off and sort out our own heads. We were spending too much time over in America, first with the Clash and then with the police, and then the Clash wanted us back, then the Talking Heads wanted us, and we were doing our own tour over there. People often forget when we were at our peak over in America, we had the likes of R.E.M. and the Bangles opening for us. So as you can imagine, we were over in America all the time. It was simply too much for us to do. If we had been able to take off six months or a year, and then got back together, we could have done it. We would have made a proper fourth album, and we would have been as big as UB40 were. I can even remember U2 opening for the beat at Hammersmith in 1982. I sometimes think, hang on, we could have been as big as U2. So, just why didn't it happen? The reason why it didn't happen was because the beat went on to become general public over in America, who were quite big for a while, and also the fine young cannibals, who were very big. If the beat had stayed together as the beat, you would have heard some fine young cannibal songs within our set. That, in my opinion, would have been the beat, I think, but the fine young cannibals got it instead, and I have to say rightfully so, because it was Dave and I that walked away from it all. So, if you like, they became the millionaires, and good on them, because we were all meant to have done it, 
But the fact is that I have now been in business for almost 40 years, and as far as I'm concerned, I have been really successful. And now from the festival, the live performances of Twist and Crawl, Tears of a Clown, and Rankin Full Stop. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome some old friends, the Beat! Well, this is weird, isn't it? See if anybody here remembers this one, then. How about a quick twist and crawl, then? Cause it 
Next up, a band out of New York. The Stray Cats are an American rockabilly band formed in 1979 by guitarist and vocalist Brian Setzer, double bassist Lee Rocker, and drummer Slim Jim Phantom. They grew up in the Long Island, New York area. The group had numerous hit singles in the UK, Australia, Canada, and the US, including Stray Cat Strut, Sexy and 17, Look at that Cadillac, I Won't Stand in Your Way, Bring It Back Again, and Rock This Town which the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has listed as one of the songs that shaped rock and roll. The Stray Cats released Built for Speed in June of 1982 by EMI Records, and it was the band's first album. Built for Speed is essentially a compilation of 12 songs taken from the band's first two UK album releases, six from Stray Cats, released in February of 81, and five from Gonna Ball, November of 1981, plus the title track, Built for Speed, which had not been previously released in the UK. It was the most successful record for the band, earning platinum certification. And with the videos for the songs such as Rock This Town and Stray Cat Strut, reaching MTV regular rotation status was not a problem. Three months later, the Stray Cats would release their second US album, Rant and Rave, in August of 1983, by EMI as well. It was produced by Dave Edmonds, the album featured the number five hit, Sexy and 17, and top 40 hit, I Won't Stand in Your Way. Here are three songs from the Stray Cats performance. Stray Cats Strut, Rumble in Brighton, and Rock This Town.
a rockabilly cat with a pump street high wearing black leather jackets old real gun guys there's the two skin heads with the rolled up jeans looking real tough and mighty mean well there's a rumble in fright tonight green sign seats for the neighborhood fight rain the damn thing that the cops can do there's a rumble in Brighton tonight They got razors in their shoes. I said, go cackle their battle cry. Well, we're with three, it's starting to brew. Asking for a whole piece of blackjacks, and they're looking mighty mean. They got chains wrapped around their fingers, their heads are all shaven clean. Well, there's a rumble in fright tonight. Great sign seats fall, the neighborhood fight. Ain't a damn thing, the cops can do. We're rocking at the house tonight.
Men at Work were an Australian rock band formed in 1979. Its founding member was Colin Hay on lead vocals and guitar. After playing as an acoustic duo with Ron Streichert during 1978 to 79, he formed the group with Streichert playing bass guitar and Jerry Spiezer on drums. They soon were joined by Greg Hamm on flute, saxophone, and keyboards, and John Reese on bass guitar, with Streichert then switching to lead guitar. This lineup achieved national and international success in the early 1980s. In January of 1983, they were the first Australian artists to have simultaneously a number one album and a number one single in the United States Billboard charts. Business as Usual was released November 9, 1981, and Down Under, 1981, respectively. With the same works, they achieved the distinction of simultaneously number one album and number one single on the Australian, New Zealand, and United Kingdom charts. Their second album, Cargo, released May 2nd of 1983, was also number one in Australia, number two in New Zealand, number three in the US, and number eight in the UK. The Australian version of Business as Usual was a black and white cover design. Overseas release had a similar design, but in black and yellow as the color scheme. Business as Usual was one of the most successful albums internationally by an Australian group. It spent an unprecedented 15 weeks at number one on the US Billboard 200 from late 1982 to early 1983, and five weeks at number one in the United Kingdom albums chart in early 83. Business as Usual is also one of the highest selling Australian albums in the early 1980s with 6 million copies shipped in the US. Surprisingly, the disc also made it to number 31 on Billboard's Black Albums chart. The first single from the album, Who Can It Be Now, was released in Australia in June of 81. Prior to the recording the rest of the album, it reached number two on the Australian Kent Music Report singles chart in August of that year. The second single, Down Under, which was issued October, peaked at number one for six weeks. A third single, Be Good Johnny, appeared in April, and the following year, it reached number eight. In February of 2010, a federal court judge in Sydney found that a flute riff from Down Under had been plagiarized from an Australian song, Kookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree, written in 1934 by Marion Sinclair. The federal court determined that the copyright was still current. Sinclair died in 1988 and had been assigned to Larkin Music. The judge found that a substantial amount of the original song had been reproduced in Down Under. Larkin Music had suggested 60% of the royalties would be appropriate compensation, but the court decreed that they shall only receive 5% and only on mechanical rights for the song since 2002 and on future profits. Cargo was the second studio album by the band. It released in April of 1983. Four singles were released from the album, with Overkill being an international top 10 hit in Canada, Ireland, Norway, and US Hot 100 Billboard chart. They won the Grammy Award for the Best New Artist in 1983, they were inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame in 1994, and they have sold over 30 million albums worldwide. In May of 2001, Down Under was listed at number four on the ARIA Top 30 Australian Songs, and Business as Usual appeared in the book 100 Best Australian Albums in October of 2010. The three songs I've chosen from their live performance are Who Could It Be Now, 
Overkill, and Land Down Under.
Here's a cute little song.
all those songs all at once. Well, we'll only play that one if you promise to sing along. Will you sing along? That's about ooh, one quarter of you are going to sing along. I'd really like it if everyone sang along. We've got one more song. Catch a shot. Catch a shot. Catch a shot. 
controversial act on the billing, the clash. The first problems would rumble with that old age issue money. But unlike Van Halen, Joe Strummer and the clash weren't demanding extra zeros. They were concerned about the gratuity of the event. After hearing about the amount paid to David Lee Roth and his band, Strummer demanded that the bigger acts donated a portion of their proceeds to charity. Then following the discovery of the ticket price hike, The Clash refused to play unless Apple donated $100,000 to charity. Their guarantee was $500,000. Approaching the stage behind them, the words, The Clash Not For Sale, were projected on the screen as the group somewhat sloppily raced through their set, hurling figurative shit at every member of the festival with every note. The Clash were unhappy with Van Halen, unhappy with the event's commercialism of rock and roll, and unhappy with the crowd. But as their swashbuckling Freedom Fighter act continued, the Clash had not realized that they had pushed the event's organizers over the edge and they were ready to blow. The crew decided to change the previous projection of the band's proclamation that they were not for sale and instead posted their $500,000 check for performing up on the screen behind them. Naturally, the band was furious. In an interview with Mark Bleisner, the 83 band and press liaison for the festival. It was just such an angry gig for them. Joe Strummer could not get across to the crowd. At one point, he was demanding hostility from them. There was so much rancor all night. The clash were going on. They weren't going on. And there was always an attitude about the band in the industry, especially a lot of American crews and promoters, because they just could not dig what the band was all about. So when the clash came off, the stage announcer gets on the mic and in his phony British accent says, you can shout as loud as you want, but the clash have left the building. It was just so obnoxious. Immediately a fist fight broke out. The clash's crew were all over this guy. I think the bassist Paul Simonon might have thrown a punch, but they felt goaded and the atmosphere was so thick with exhaustion, tension, and testosterone. It was a horrible night just in terms of the vibe of everything. They were bitching about money, Faye says, of the clash. 
but that's why we put a copy of the check up on the video screen during their set, showing they, they got half a million dollars. Two days later, the pretenders covered Barrett Strong's money. That's what I want. As a retort to the bickering and freewheeling spending, they ended up in a physical altercation with the event's crew and refused to play an encore. Little did the crowd know that only four months later, guitarist and founding member of The Clash, Mick Jones, would leave the band after a falling out with Joe Strummer. The two creative powerhouses were beginning to cause increasing amounts of friction as they continuously butted heads. It finally sent the dynamic duo on different paths. Paths which would cross again in 2002, just a few short weeks before Strummer's untimely death. Though the band had already recently parted ways with the original drummer Topper Hedden, following his heavy drug use, Jones's departure was a nail in the Clash coffin. Here are a few songs from their performance. All right then. All right then, here we are in the capital of the decadent US of A. This here set of music is now dedicated to making sure that those people in the crowd who have children, there is something left here for them later in the centuries. This is a radio clash, but it's a lie. 
I know we're supposed to be. I know the human race is supposed to get down on its knees in front of all this new technology and kiss the microchip circuits. It doesn't impress me over much when there ain't nothing but a you buy, you make, you buy, you die. That's the motto of America. You get born to buy it. And I tell you, those people out in East LA, they ain't gonna stay there forever. And if there's anything gonna be in the future, it's gonna be from all parts of everything, not just one white way down the middle of the road. So if anybody out there ever grows up, for fuck's sake!
7 a.m. Move yourself to go again. Cold water in the face. Brings you back to the sharp old place. Knuckle nuts and your bankers too. Must get up I learn those rules. With a man of crazy teeth. Once his son and once his teeth. AM, the FM, the PM too. Turning out that boo Get you up, I get you out. But how long can you keep it up? Give me hundreds, give me Sony. We're phony, I'm gonna die in the incense English pounds and it's no pain You love! Don't stop, give it all you got You love! Don't stop, give it all you got You love! Don't stop You love! Don't stop, give it all the hell Anybody know the feeling That I am really My station, taking my baby to sophistication. See me out to keep us nice, but well, I work hard. I've seen the past, never mind that. It's time for the bus. We got to work, you're one of us. Boss goes playing, I put some work. Manage dragging me out. Wave a goodbye to the boss. It's our puppet, it's his loss. But anyway, a lunch bell rain. Take one hour to your
So, as ambitious and passionate as I am about the bands and the music on this show, 
I fear that you, the listener, may not share in the same measure. And so, it's with that, the show will be in two parts. Today, we've covered Divinals, In Excess, Wall of Voodoo, Wango Boingo, Flock of Seagulls, The English Beat, The Stray Cats, Men at Work, and The Clash in their final performance with their original members. Next week, we'll finish up with Berlin, U2, Missing Persons, The Pretenders, and David Bowie, and announce the next topic for the following week as we move into the holiday season. So now it's time for Crandall's Crucial Cut. Although we've not covered any of the rock day of this amazing festival, I thought I'd be remiss in my responsibilities if I failed to talk a little about the band Van Halen and pay my respects to the late, great Eddie Van Halen. As mentioned, their paycheck would ultimately be the reason for The Clash's disenchantment with the festival. I do promise at a later date to come back and do an episode on the rock day of the US Festival. The song I've chosen to pay homage to Eddie Van Halen isn't actually a Van Halen song, but a song written for Eddie by his son Wolfgang Van Halen after his father's passing. Nothing I could say would compare to what his only child could say about his dad. Wolfgang Van Halen, bassist for the band Van Halen and son for the late rock god Eddie Van Halen, released his first solo song and its accompanying music video last Monday. No matter what the distance is, I'll be with you, Wolfgang Van Halen sings to his dad in the song Distance. No matter what the distance is, you'll be okay. Van Halen wrote the track while his father was actually battling with throat cancer and recorded the track under the name Mammoth WVH. Although he sings the raspy, emotional lead and plays all of the instruments, the song has a feel of a real band. I'm so happy you found a place that's better for you than this rock that we're living on, Wolfgang Van Halen sings. I'm so nervous. I don't know my place. A life without you. I'm not ready to move on. The accompanying video that can be found on YouTube was stitched together from tender home videos of Eddie Van Halen meeting, loving, and raising his only son. As my pop continued to struggle with his various health issues, I was imagining what my life would be like without him and how terribly I'd miss him. Wolfgang, 29 years old, wrote in a YouTube caption, While the song is incredibly personal, I think anyone can relate to the idea of profound loss in their life. I never intended distance to be the very first piece of music that people would hear from me, but I also thought my father would be here to celebrate its release, he continued. This is for him. I love and miss you, Pop. So until next time, so long and farewell. Go up to her. Yeah. I love you, Daddy. <laughs> I love you. Uh, meet me up in the uh, room. We gotta clean up above the garage and build a little studio for you and me. Yeah. Or for you. (laughs) Bye bye.
So happy to have you. That's my son, man. So proud of you. I love you so much. Call me if you get a chance. I want to hear your voice. Okay? I love you. Behind the Orange Curtain. A look at 80s music from Orange County, California. Music that came from here and music that came to here.